we're going to talk provincial politics as well with regard to the ICBC announcement of yesterday. It was uh, pretty interesting to have um, Premier David Eby speak to uh, the rate freeze for ICBC and, uh, and, and really in the essence of it being about saving money for British Columbians. Uh, is that even possible? So in this affordability crisis, here's what the Solicitor General had to say on how BC insurance will be more, more affordable than if it were to go private. With this latest action, basic insurance rates will now be at their lowest level since 2014. This was validated as recently as last week with the release of an Ernst & Young report that found auto insurance in British Columbia is more affordable in province than in provinces with private insurance. It's hard to follow this bouncing ball, isn't it? It's really quite difficult to, to process because we have perennially been the most expensive place in the country when it comes to insuring our motor vehicles. Well, let me tell you how the Taxpayers Federation of BC is saying, hold on a second. Uh, actually, it's the Canadian Taxpayers Federation that is calling on the government of British Columbia to actually end the ICBC car insurance monopoly. And we are very pleased to bring on Carson Binda, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation BC director. Carson, good to talk with you. Thanks so much for having me on uh, this morning, Jody. It's great to chat with you. So unpack this for us a little bit, you know, as cliche as that is to say, it feels like an overstuffed suitcase, this whole ICBC. Sometimes it's a bank account, sometimes it's a it's a dumpster fire. Now it's an application for a rate freeze that is, air quotes, supposed to make it the most affordable uh, car insurance in the country. What do you see from your perspective? Well, calling uh, ICBC the most affordable insurance in the country, it's magic math and made up numbers from this provincial government. Look, freezing the rates for the next two years, it's a good start. It's a step in the right direction that is going to probably bring those rates down in the, in the short term. But it's just not a long-term solution. If the provincial government was serious about putting out the dumpster fire at ICBC, then they need to open the insurance market up to competition. So, what does that look like, though? Because people have done the alternate math on this. And as you heard, the Minister of Public Safety and Solicitor General Mike Farmer say there, you know, it wouldn't be cheaper if it was open to, to private and, and for people in the private sector to bid on managing insurance here. What do we see in other jurisdictions with regard to uh, claims that are made in, in areas that are privatized? Well, take a look at Quebec. Quebec is a great example, a great comparison that we can use here in BC, because just like us, they use a no-fault insurance model. But whereas drivers in BC are paying average written insurance premiums of about $1,200, in Quebec, they're paying $300 less at an average of about $900. Now, the big difference between Quebec and BC, bear in mind they both have a no-fault system, is that in Quebec, drivers can shop around. They can choose whatever insurance package works best for them from the, uh, from the private sector. So opening up the auto insurance sector to competition, it drives prices down. Yeah, it drives prices down. But what if, Carson, and, and obviously you're not a, a, an expert on the specifics of insuring drivers, but having lived in Ontario for a decade, and this didn't happen to me, but I had a couple of friends who had claims in a private insurance scenario and then found it very difficult to get insured at all. Yeah, well, here in, in BC, unfortunately, with the ICBC monopoly, there is simply no choice. In other right. provinces, if you're not happy with your insurance provider, you can shop around. You can look for the best deal, the best insurance package that works for you and your family. Uh, if one company denies you, you can keep looking. You can find the insurance that works best for you. In BC, drivers just don't have that option. They're yeah. stuck with this government monopoly, which burns billions of dollars a year. And there's that oppressive entry-level rate that hits so many young people so hard who are already dealing with an affordability crisis. But what if, is it, is it that uh, Minister Farnworth is, is pointing to the fact that if you do have issues on your insurance history, that private insurance might inevitably cost you more because there are so many options and yet there are insurers who will just say, no, you're too much of a risk. It's a risk that that's 
certain individuals may see their insurance premiums go up in a, in a purely private system. But for the vast majority of drivers, they will see their premiums go down. Having mm. the ability to shop around, uh, preventing ICBC from setting whatever rates they want and slamming taxpayers with those high rates, it's a win-win. You know what, Carson, I see your point in, in that the majority of drivers would benefit from a private system. It is that slice of the drivers who, in a no-fault system, might have had a claim at no fault of their own who find themselves then up against the wall when it comes to paying a higher premium. So again, this is rewarding good drivers for the most part. That's what the private system would do. Right. And fundamentally, insurance is about uh, providing car insurance specifically is to provide a safety net if you're seriously injured in a crash. Let's say you're paralyzed in a, in a car crash. You buy automotive insurance so you can get the treatment you need and make the, the necessary changes to your house. Right now with ICBC, we're just not seeing that. Families are being left in the lurch, having to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars out of pocket because ICBC, their only option for insurance in BC, is just not willing to, to give them the support that they need. It's an interesting piece of this puzzle as we're all trying to navigate the affordability crisis that is ongoing across the country, but certainly uh, high here in British Columbia. Carson Binda, thank you for taking some time for us today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Jody. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, and we are efforting to connect with our next guest, Vina Najibula, who is the adjunct professor at UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. We want to talk about the prisoner swap that freed Brittany Griner. We have been watching this uh, from Canada into the U.S., watching U.S. officials pivot and turn and move to try and bring the WNBA star back from Russia after she was detained, clearly detained in a way uh, to be used as a pawn against the U.S. government. That's clear. Did she have cartridges that had traces of hashish oil in her bags? Yes, the hard labor, uh, guilty verdict that would send her off uh, to a prison camp uh, seemed extreme, to say the least. Who she was swapped for became quite the flashpoint for many. We have connected now with adjunct professor at UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. Vina Najibula is our guest. Great to speak with you. Vina, thanks for doing this. Hi, Jody. Hi. I'm, I'm happy to be on the show. Thanks for inviting me. I want to talk about inter- international security and peace building. That's something that you're a specialist in. You've worked at the United Nations, just for people to understand who you are. You've worked at the United Nations headquarters in peacekeeping and peace building missions in Western Central Africa. You've got more than 20 years in high level diplomacy and strategic planning. I'm reading your bio basically here, but it's oh, it's really yeah. something, it's that. something that you bring to the table, though. But I, I want a full disclosure here. You and I happen to have brunch this weekend with a mutual friend, me not knowing right. much, much about what you do and, and how you teach and your life experience. And some of the things that you brought up, just as we were all having casual conversation, I kept thinking, I have got to have Vina on the show to talk about this. Let's start with Brittany Griner and the Russian arms dealer that she was swapped for and how that has polarized within the United States. Yeah. Uh, sorry to- are you there? Hello? Yes. Oh, can you hear me? Are we having connectivity yes, yes, issues? Sorry, I just, okay. Uh, it seems so, but I, I hear you now. So, um, yes, you mentioned Brittany Griner's case and the prisoner swap that just took yes. place to bring her back to the U.S. Um, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, uh, she was a pawn. We've established that, that notwithstanding the small amount of hashish oil that she had on her while traveling to Russia, the nine-year sentence that then she was handed and the, the penal colony that she was sent to, I mean, it was seen as unjust, and the United States government had characterized her detention as wrongful, right? So basically, from that point onwards, the State Department was working to find a solution and to bring her home. What ended up, what that solution ended up being is quite controversial, because as you mentioned, Victor Boot was exchanged for her return, and he is a notorious figure, um, so much so that there was even a Hollywood film made about him, Lord of War, which uh, 
showed how much he was involved in the various uh, civil wars all over African continents, or actually back when I was working at the United Nations, his name was something that we were all familiar with because he was a character in a number of civil wars that were raging across the continent. So, uh, yes, so that prisoner swap has been controversial. It's also played into a lot of partisan rhetoric and politics in, in the U.S. with the Republicans, not surprisingly, having issues with the return of this um, high-profile um, Russian arms dealer, but also with the fact that another American, also wrongfully detained, Paul Whelan, was not included in the swap. So those were the two lines of critique, if you will. While everybody, I think, recognizes that it's good to have uh, an American who was wrongfully detained home, right? I mean, not to take away from the humanitarian relief that everybody feels. Right. But in there, in that controversy within the Republican Party saying, where's Mr. Whelan, the former U.S. Marine? Why was it Ms. Greiner who was uh, brought home? And the, the divisiveness within the United States, this plays as a win for Vladimir Putin, does it not? Well, and I think in part, I mean, it's really difficult to speculate exactly what was happening in Kremlin and in Putin's mind, but one can... Um, imagine that he didn't want this to be a win for President Biden, right? The return right. of Brittany Griner. And, and a way to ensure that is to play into this divisive uh, partisan politics and, and cultural wars as well, right? I mean, they've very much in social media have publicized the idea that, you know, Ms. Griner being a, um, a lesbian and a, a black woman versus sort of Paul Whelan, a white heterosexual male, and, and whose, val- whose life matters more and so forth. So, the Russians have played into this and is a way to undermine the the win for President Biden. I think that's in part why they couldn't agree to the two-for-one swap, right, which is what I think the Biden administration made public over the summer, that they'd like to exchange two-for-one, two Americans for this one Russian uh, who was sent, serving a 25-year sentence in the U.S. So that signal earlier in the year, how does that play out politically? The... The proposal to do it. I mean, this goes back to the bigger issue, right? So I think one thing that happened in the course of the 10 months of Brittany Griner's wrongful detention is that there's been a lot more spotlight put on the issue of Americans and other citizens who are being wrongfully held by foreign governments, uh, particularly Russia, Iran, North Korea, um, as well as China and Venezuela, who use those foreign nationals that uh, they've detained for the purposes of foreign policy leverage. So what what some have called hostage diplomacy, right? And Mm. that is something that's not unique just to Brittany Griner. There are publicly known cases of at least 40-plus Americans who are currently being held wrongfully, according to the State Department, and a handful of other nationals, uh, especially a lot of dual nationals. So Iranians who are also UK citizens and um, American citizens and even Canadian citizens are currently being held by the Iranian regime as well for what we believe to be um, political leverage or foreign policy leverage. So they're essentially being held hostage by states. And that's a really complicated issue. And how to find a solution and bring those people home and liberate them has been plaguing governments, um, certainly U.S., European, and even Canadian, right? And as a result, a few policy changes are now happening. And part of that response is prisoner swaps, but that's only really one potential tool that can be used. It's certainly a very controversial tool. It's, it's costly. There are political costs. There's obviously a lot of potential moral dilemmas in, in whether or not to engage in that kind of prison swap, but it's only one tool. And what's important here is to understand that this is a bigger issue. It's not just limited to Brittany Griner. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, my guest, Vina Najibula, adjunct professor at UBC School of Public Policy and Global Affairs. Prior to the break, we were talking about Brittany Griner and the swap for the Russian arms dealer uh, and, and how that is playing out in the United States versus how it might be playing out in Russia. There are a lot of uh, there's a lot of buzz around this and it and, and it's almost like a reality TV show playing out on some levels as people are just skipping along the headlines. But if you dive a little bit deeper and Vina, I had the opportunity to chat with you about how the global yeah. community is changing so much and so it's fe- seemingly so rapidly in where we are at with conflicts uh, growing. We've kind of lived in this little bubble above the United States for, States for so long as Canadians. How is global politics and what we are seeing in terms of perhaps not 
thinking in a global scale, but now moving somewhat backwards to who are your friends, who are you working with, and how are you protecting what's mm-hmm. yours when it comes to, to the political landscape moving forward? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really big question, Jill. And it's easier to discuss these things over brunch because you can kind of go anywhere. But I guess for the purposes of a, of a conversation on the radio, I guess I'll just highlight a couple of things, which is yes. for the last 30 years, we've really enjoyed unprecedented prosperity and peace, not just in Canada, but in many parts of the world, right? And what we're now seeing with the war in Ukraine, with the rising and more sort of China, with all the disruptions to global supply chains because of the pandemic and the changes around climate change, there's just a lot more volatility, a lot more conflicts. And there's also a rise of authoritarian and illiberal tendencies, both in certain countries, certainly China and Russia, but also within our communities where we're seeing sort of backlashes against democracy and against uh, public institutions. And that is all making governments and reconsider how we go about both engaging in trade, but also how we start to protect ourselves from uh, cyber threats, from interference right here in Canada. We've been really uh, alarmed by um, alleged interferences in our elections uh, by China, Russia and other adversary states. So there's just many different things happening at once. And in the same way that each one of us individually has felt quite overwhelmed by our changes in our daily lives because of pandemic and and inflation and everything else, on a global scale, sort of if you really think about geopolitics, all of those pressure points are just times 100, right? So, and it's requiring various governments to come up with new approaches. So here in Canada, we for the first time saw something in the last two weeks, which is the Indo-Pacific strategy, right? The recognition that we need to both pivot to that part of the world, but also be much more um, aware of the challenges and opportunities that arise there, right? The opportunities for trade and doing business in the most dynamic part of the world, which is the Indo-Pacific, but also threats and challenges that are emanating for um, from a more assertive China, right? So um, I think it's just, I mean, there's a moment of crisis and that both has opportunities within it and, and also challenges. And we just spoke about the Brittany Griner case, but even that issue in terms of travel to certain countries now um, has a national security dimension to it, which is why the U.S. has made an official designation uh, for a number of countries that engage in arbitrary detention for the purposes of leverage, right? It's something that the U.S. is leading on, but other countries will be considering as well. And one other thing that I'd mention, um, just in terms of positive things, right? Like we're not just kind of observing all of those governments are reacting. So Canadian government two years ago on the specific issue of states taking hostages or arbitrarily detaining uh, innocent citizens for the purposes of leverage, Canada led a global initiative, uh, which now has 70 signatories uh, to it, um, calling attention to this practice and trying to build consensus that this is not okay, that governments need to come together and stand with each other when one of their citizens is taken in this way, right? So that's, that's a positive way to move forward. But there are many, many challenges. So you have lived abroad. You have you, your background is incredibly diverse, and in the countries that you have called home, when when we feel yeah. the wanderlust, when we feel free to move about the planet as so many of us do and have, yeah. how mindful must we be of that undercurrent of really anyone could be grabbed and used as a pawn? Well, yes, I mean that that threat is now higher, but I still want to mention that obviously of millions of people who travel, it's still only a handful that end up in this really dire circumstance, but right. but that threat is now there and people have to be mindful. And like I said, the U.S. has gone ahead and made an official designation. It's, it's a de-label. They've actually, in the same way that you know countries have kidnapping rates, uh, now there's also this new category of arbitrary detention that we have to be mindful. But that's still just a handful of states, although obviously one, one has to be careful with a number of other issues as well in, in, in countries that are not as peaceful and democratic as Canada is in this case. 
Indeed. And I, I was just watching the news earlier today and, and seeing an Iranian soccer player who is scheduled to be yeah. executed because he, of what he had said in, in support of women's yeah. rights. Those types of statements that, that people make or platforms that are used that might be used against you. And when you travel, you should, I guess my point being, uh, while it is so rare that this might happen, being mindful of, of what, where you are going might not be the same as what you are used to being in, in your home country, I guess, you know, there are some countries where chewing gum is illegal. <laughs> or at least spitting it, I think on the street, I think you there can you go. chew it. There, right, right. Chew it, but yeah, not disposing totally... of it. Right, right. Thank you. <laughs> yes. No, I think, yeah, chewing gum, I think it's still okay, but, but no, I mean, and, and again, it also, I mean, uh, as someone who lives in Canada now, I'm, I'm extremely grateful for, for the freedoms that we enjoy here. And it's mm. another reminder to um, to protect those institutions and to protect those freedoms and to be an active and engaged citizen, not only here in Canada, but also globally. Right. I mean, I think that's that's the message that we, we we're part of the same humanity. We'll live on the same planet. And that comes with responsibilities and it also comes with certain vigilance to be aware of what's happening outside of our borders, right? Uh, I mean, that's something that I've been really engaged with. And with the same friend that you mentioned that we all had uh, brunch with, we're also trying to kind of figure out a way to to bring greater interest among Canadians to what's happening outside of our borders, right? To remind everyone that we are a nation that uh, is very much a trading nation and our peace and prosperity depends on, on what's happening in the rest of the world as well. And not to mention the many millions of Canadians who have come here from other places and have links to, um, to their uh, former countries and as a result care as well. We can say her name on here. She's a good friend of the program, Sandy Garasino, likely listening right now, the gatherer of people. And Vina, I hope to have many more conversations with you. I, uh, Like I said, we could go on for hours as we did at brunch. Um, but also the importance of having these conversations so that people understand that some of the fringe headlines that we see that are, are built to divide, uh, there is definitely a conversation to be had to pull us all together again. And certainly in this country, we can celebrate that. I celebrate having an opportunity to bend your ear just for a little bit of time today. Thanks for doing this. Well, thank you so much. For, I, I really enjoy speaking with you. And yes, happy to, to come on anytime. Ladies and gentlemen, make some noise for the richest man in the world. Dave Chappelle introducing Elon Musk at one of his gigs and uh, the boo birds were out and uh, yeah, that's trending on Twitter. No huge surprise. We're going to talk about Twitter and Elon Musk. All social media developments come with our next guest. Uh, Brings such great perspective as social media educator and principal at Mediated Reality. Jesse Miller is on the line with us. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Jody. Where to begin? Where to begin, indeed. It's just, it's the Daily Musk is is almost what's happening uh, on Twitter. The platform itself uh, has become, um, I don't even know what, with people wanting to leave it, but they can't quit it because they love it, and then they want to complain about it, and then they're witnessing some of the... I think most atrocious posts by the man who bought it. It's it's really been something to witness. And let's let's begin there. Let's begin with Elon Musk tweeting uh, just a couple of days ago. It now has 114,000 comments, 221,000 retweets, and 1.2 million likes. His tweet was simply, "My pronouns are prosecute and Fauci." Yeah. Um, look, he owns the platform. He can do what he wants. Um, he has long time, well before he ever owned Twitter, been known as a troll. Uh, for those of you who don't know what trolls are on the Internet, they just kind of stir the pot because they want to see the world burn. Um, as much as Musk believes he is a creator and wants to um, be the harbinger of new civilizations on new planets and getting humanity into a better space, 
he has uh, always taken opportunities to drag people down, whether it be going after a diver who's trying to rescue people in a cave in Thailand or whether it be within his own uh, businesses. And to be fair, I mean, he's a very effective business person. And uh, even today we found out he's not the world's richest you know, man in the world because, you know, it goes up and down when it comes to stock valuations. It's all kind of inflated values, but we do know he's got money. And so the ability in a capitalist community to be able to buy something like Twitter, which he does want to be kind of the community square, the ability for people to have open discourse. He doesn't like when people are criticizing him. He doesn't like when people are um, holding him accountable in certain spaces. And now we're getting to a point of whether or not we should care about Twitter. And to be honest with you, without an oversight board, without trust and safety, what's the point? It's really interesting, Jesse, because what you said right off the top there, he owns Twitter and he can do whatever he wants, right? So with that in mind, all of the controversy about the Twitter files, right? This, this we are going to release the files, stand by, we're releasing the files, which was just a, a red meat feast for a slice of society on how Twitter oppressed information. Like, I'm so confused by the Twitter files, to be honest with you, but it was, you know, there were things about Hunter Biden's laptop and there's things about, you know, whether or not then president donald trump was not getting as the reach that he was thinking he would get and then some backroom deals to do but wouldn't the people who own twitter before elon musk have equal power to do with twitter what they want it's so interesting how the game changes here yes and no so we have to remember as as a publicly traded company beforehand there was a lot of oversight in how the company made choices and so those choices would come under scrutiny from a board Musk doesn't have that board. He is the sole owner with investors who decide to get behind him. So the thing here is that when he buys a company, he's going through all the files. He's going through everything that he has now purchased. And so there are parts of this conversation with Twitter, you know, Twitter gate or Twitter, whatever people want to call it, that are legitimate in how we choose to use social media. So if we know that a public personality like the former president, Donald Trump, had parts of the way they communicated censored, there's a concern of whether or not you should have leaders of countries using a platform like Twitter to communicate. Like we as people who choose our our everyday uh, decisions based on the government tweeting something have to have faith in that system. And again, is it something that government should be choosing to do? The Canadian government has a number of Twitter accounts that we should be scrutinizing now whether or not this is the preferred mode of communication. So whether it be Facebook, whether it be TikTok, whatever the political ideology of the company or whatever we assume that something is associated to, the platform itself is not necessarily the concern. It's whether or not we should have faith in how the information is traveling. And I firmly believe that if you're going to put something on Twitter, anybody who wants to see it, anybody who should be able to have access to it should be there. We shouldn't see police departments blocking people on social media. We shouldn't see cities who choose to use social media blocking constituents. And so the hard part here for Musk is that he now decided to buy the town square. And most of the time, you can't buy the town square. It's not for sale. So that's the interesting piece of this. Boy, this is why I love having Jesse Miller on. Every time you're with me, I learn something. And that right there is is such a key piece when it when it comes to what's different between Twitter 2.0 or whatever we're calling it, Musk.0, um, versus, you know, the Jack iteration and, and how it 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 does impact how we must look at at what's being consumed it's it's kind of akin and correct me if i'm wrong it's kind of akin to knowing your newspaper or platform that you would you know read the news in or watch the cable news outlet whether they have you know what what we have for the most part in broadcast news in canada with the the canadian radio and television consortium the, the commission having the crtc oversight or you know what is infotainment and what is reputable news sources uh, south of the border different different yeah, very uh, different. requirements I mean, I, right yeah and we get to that point of, I like how you kind of put it, infotainment. I mean, majority of listeners will know that they can watch Judge Judy uh, at some point today. But the thing is, anybody who's participating in that show has basically agreed that you're giving up a lot of your legal rights in an argument to kind of facilitate the idea of being on the show and getting your court case seen in a different way. That is legal entertainment. It's not a legal process. But the thing is, is that in our in our entertainment driven world, whether it be reality TV, whether it be about news entertainment, and there are parts of that, you know, the Daily Show is news entertainment. I mean, we, we would hope that people who are watching content, whether it be conservative or liberal, are 
not only fact-checking, but choosing to make sure that they're accessing information and then sharing information that has been fact-checked where we can have a consensus and say, you know what, the majority of people say that this information is factual, so let's kind of go to our ideology at that point and make a conversation out of it. Musk doesn't do that. He leans in very heavily to the idea of what he says or what he tweets is the way he thinks the world should be. And again, there is a following of Musk. There are people who subscribe to the way he does things. And we see that with any version of celebrity, whether it be a Kardashian, whether it be Trump. Uh, So when it comes down to it, should we be putting celebrities into these pieces of the conversation where they get the choice to say something and have it have a direct effect on our everyday lives? The concern here is he's targeting health care. He's targeting people's ability to have the freedom to be called what they'd like to be, which is a preferred pronoun, and there should be no problem with that. Or mm. when it comes down to it, is he just subscribing to other people and now regurgitating it? And a lot of his content looks like and sounds like Jordan Peterson, who's a right-wing ideologist. Yeah, so bringing it around to the fact that Elon Musk does enjoy being a troll, if Elon Musk gets under your skin retweeting, reacting, posting, getting mad about it is exactly what he's hoping you'll do. Yeah, even I'm guilty of it as well. I commented today that, you know, they've gotten rid of Twitter trust and safety. Trust and safety looks at aspects of child pornography being shared on the platform. I don't understand why in the world they would get rid of the department that's responsible for making sure there's no child pornography on Twitter. But what he's done with that is that the town square now looks a little bit more like this casino in Back to the Future 2. Right. All the craziness and everything else where it's like, it's okay, you know, everything's going to police itself. If we don't have a community where you have oversight, moderation, rules, guidance and the expectation of how people participate, you cannot create a town square. That's something that we value in our everyday lives. Why in the world would we expect different on social media? Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. My guest is Jesse Miller. He is a social media educator at Mediated Reality and helps us to sort of navigate our digital citizenship and also give us a reflection of what's actually going on. And Jesse, so many people think the world is Twitter. It's actually not. You know, the world is TikTok. Also not true. Um, Social media, an important tool. And also being a good digital citizen is an important piece of the puzzle. Uh, but what we're seeing right now with with Elon Musk and sort of the turbulence on that platform, what, how do you consume the news that he has disbanded that trust and ethics committee at Twitter? So, so just a, a couple of notes. I mean, trust and safety is is the department, and so safety is that piece where if a person is receiving harassment on the platform, if there's a, a violation of terms of service, there would be an oversight team. There would be individuals whose job it is to not only review the direct messages or the commentary, but the, just the, the the tone and whether it becomes harassing. Now, the hard part here is that we traditionally hear when people have a hard time online, oh, block the person, but people make new accounts, and so that team would also include individuals who identify whether or not the person is basically sitting at the same computer. And Mm. so what we now have is concern that when you have law enforcement, we're going to be reaching out to Twitter for things like, let's say, a murder investigation. There might not be employees who are in place in that department to give information that would be needed for an investigation. And so every social media platform needs to have um, aspects of this in the sense of accordance and how they participate. Now, the thing is, if he has a bare bone safety team, then he's probably checking off a box and saying, well, we've got this. But the, the real thing for me is a concern is that Twitter is a worldwide platform. It doesn't matter where you are in the world. You can get access if you really want to be on it. So in that, when you have individuals from around the world who are trying to liaise with companies and connect with things, usually we see marketing that goes into that where you have trust and safety or brand management. But for the regular everyday user, you don't get to reply to a person. You don't get to ask that person for help. You really do require the individual to bre- breach the terms of service. But if there's no way of identifying that now, you know, it's going to become a bit of a free-for-all for those who want to hurt individuals on social media. Mm, that's it's scary, to say the least, especially what we're seeing already uh, with those safeguards in place. Uh, let's go to the phones. Lots of people wanting to chime in on the subject. 604-280-9898 is the number. Bill in Burnaby, you're up first. Welcome. Hi, Jody. Uh, hi, Jesse. Uh, I'm happy that uh, Elon Musk actually uh, bought this thing and, and did all the file dumps that he did, exposing what was going on behind the scenes at Twitter. Uh, basically, everything that a lot of people were thinking was going on and being called conspiracy theorists for actually is true. Uh, I read all the file dumps, and the conclusion I've come to basically is that 
the media and the left, are, the reason why their heads are exploding is because they've lost control of the narrative now and they don't have the ability to censor and uh, disseminate uh, opinions that differ from theirs and put out their message. Uh, they've, they've had total control of, of the town square, as you call it, for many years, and now it's coming back and uh, people are actually going to be able to say and uh, express what they think. Thanks, Bill. Um, is that 100% accurate, though? I Jesse, I'll ask you this, because Donald Trump had, what, 39 million followers or something on Twitter? So I don't know that it was all left-owned. Twitter. Yeah, to be fair, I mean, to Bill's point, there are there are always aspects of information sharing that get get that get redacted. Just the, yeah. that's the truth of it, right? We have yeah, a police yeah. investigation. You have police say, uh, you know, right now our investigation is here. We're not releasing any more information until we can. And so that's the process of law. That's the process of enforcement, right? Majority of those Twitter files were all during the Trump presidency. So I don't know what the you know the burning you know the burning kind of uh, point is here beyond the idea that. Governments sometimes lie. Individuals yeah. in power sometimes redact information. There's nobody surprised by that. It's not a left or right thing. It's whether or yeah. not the gatekeepers of information are choosing to make it available to people. And in this instance, Twitter at the time um, didn't want to kind of tip the boat in that sense. I mean, the reality of it is, is that whether you're left or right, you're going to get emboldened with whatever information comes your way. Uh, if you care about a laptop, you care about a laptop. If you care about, you know, somebody uh, with prostitutes in a hotel and then be, before they became president, you care about that. The question here is whether or not these people's choices impact people to get access to health care. I mean, that's that's at the end of the day, my concern. And so if that's the case, maybe those people shouldn't ha- be in power at all, let alone have power over the, of the town square. I think you touch on something really important there is that this is not new nor is it unique in in so many instances across the globe and in so many walks. So when Bill said, you know, that's why the left's heads are exploding, I, I in that moment I'm like, well, I must be a centrist because my I'm not surprised at all that that these these files exist. But I, I'm I'm interested in the outrage at a Hunter Biden laptop. In that I'm just like he wasn't a, an elected official. I don't I don't really yeah, get I don't again, get it. it yeah, it doesn't really do anything except for embolden an idea, right? Would I be as equally emboldened if I believe that Eric Trump was doing something untoward? It comes down to whether or not it's criminal and whether Maybe, or not it affects people's ability to make choices. And so, if it affects, you know, President Biden's ability to make choices, then that person shouldn't be in power. If it affected President True. Trump, that person shouldn't be in power. The thing True. here is that with social media, you have so much more evidence to these stories and these allegations. And so, that conspiracy theory piece that Bill commented on, there's legitimacy there because we are always looking for conspiracy validation we are looking for the idea that there are parts of our feelings that we scrutinize that should get some more attention and to be fair right now you have you know uh, musk who's scrutinizing uh fauci based on choices that were made in 2020 during uh the starting of the uh, of COVID. shouldn't yeah. we be scrutinizing those choices of course we should why so we can better prepare society for the next pandemic will it yeah. happen most likely the question is whether or not we care to learn from the mistakes made or just point fingers and be like see i told you so i don't right. get it Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. Glad to have you along today. Our conversation next will slip into an area of wellness that I think many people maybe suffer from without even knowing it, especially after the last couple of years. I don't know about you, but it has been a long time since I've had the full panel of blood work and as the daughter of a lab technician, uh, for me to not have that on a regular basis is really saying something because mom was like check your meds, check your blood. Um, And being somebody who has suffered anemia my entire life, this story really peaked for me because anemia can have a lot of repercussions that maybe you don't align with how your blood work might be. You might write it off as other things. So really pleased to bring on board Dr. Adam Davidson, emergency physician at Lionsgate Hospital and a clinical assistant professor in the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine. Dr. Davidson, thank you so much for being with us. Hi there, Jody. Thanks so much for having me. You were one of the people who were the push I needed to actually get to Life Labs and get my blood work done because let's start with how we met. Uh, you you are part of a team of people who are trying to uh, forward the awareness piece 
on um, outpatient IV therapy with a a particular focus on intravenous iron treatment. So just give a a little bit of the Coles notes for our listener on on what that is and and why some people need it. Sure, yeah. So iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia, while part of the same the same sort of spectrum are, are sort of separate things. And as an emergency physician, one of the, the things that you get to see is, is you're, you're often the first to see what's, what's breaking in, in the healthcare system because eMERGE is where people go when, when they're desperate, when they don't have any other options. And what myself and my colleagues were noting were more and more people coming to the emergency department uh, trying to get uh, IV iron therapy because the waits to get into the medical daycares in the hospitals were so long and normally sort of iron and iron metabolism, it's not typically in the field of emergency medicine, but uh, it, it, it took me by surprise and, and made me question, well, how, how common is this? This is crazy. And there, through a couple of personal connections and just looking into it myself, I started to realize just how epidemic this is in particular among, among women out there. Yeah, it's not something we often talk about, and yet so many of us have suffered with this. And and I always use it because I found out that I was anemic rather randomly. I was going to donate blood. I'm not. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not. I'm needle phobe. I want to help. I want to give back. I'm. You know. I'm like. I'm healthy. I can do this. And they're like, "Sorry, you can't." And I was like, what? Yeah. "Wait, what?" Well, and then started and, and, to do due diligence and figured out that a bunch of the stuff that does make me struggle a bit is associated with my anemia. So you're helping them. And, and you're, yeah, and your story is a, is a classic one. And for, for many women out there, again, this is a predominantly female issue, they, they don't know they're anemic um, until something like that, that event sort of happens. And they've, they've likely been living with it for a very long time. And frankly, it's a testament to how tough you are, that, that you function as highly as you do, all things considered. But your story is a very common one. And ironically, it's, it's a test that's very easy to do. It costs sort of pennies on the dollar compared to other medical tests that we do. And, and I, one of the things that myself and others in this field are pushing for is to, is to start screening for this more, frankly, especially in women who have gone through puberty and before uh, who are premenopausal. Yeah. So when it comes to having this deficiency or having anemia, what are some of the things that can be attributed to that? What are some of the symptoms of this that might be written off as other things? For sure, yeah. And so again, one of the common misconceptions is that iron deficiency and anemia are the same thing. And while they're related, right. like I said, they're different. Right. And so um, typically what happens first is, is your body's, the iron stores start to deplete. And as they get low enough, you you start to develop symptoms of iron deficiency alone. And this happens before typically you become anemic. And, and these symptoms are quite nonspecific, but by far the most common is, a, is fatigue. And we're not talking a, a shortness of breath when you're going upstairs or with, or with exercise, but just that three o'clock, four o'clock hits and you're exhausted. You know, you'd love to go to the gym or you'd love to do other stuff after work, but you just can't, all you want to do is lie down on the couch. And that's by far the most, the most common symptom. But we also need iron to do uh, a, a whole lot of other reactions in our body. And one of the ones that people don't often know is that you, you need iron to create uh, serotonin and dopamine. So these are the two heavy hitters of our neurochemistry in the brain. In the brain. And so when you get low on iron, this can exacerbate symptoms of, of mood. So anxiety symptoms, depressive symptoms, and and while this may not be the, the primary cause, it certainly can, can magnify the effects or affect your ability to respond to treatment. So, so mood can be affected. People often describe a, an iron fog, so concentration can be difficult. Um, sleep quality as well, so, so restless legs at nighttime is a common symptom of low iron. And so this can disrupt your sleep. So there's a whole, whole uh, swath of sort of non-specific but common symptoms that are related to iron deficiency. And then once you tip over into true anemia, that's when you can start to feel dizzy when you stand up, uh, short of breath going, doing small amounts of exercise, um, getting pay, uh, becoming quite pale, et cetera. Those are sort of the more classic symptoms that, that people think of with anemia. So when it comes to anemia, 
Can it be Again, dangerous if untreated long term? It certainly it certainly can for sure. And and part of part of it depends on how quickly you become anemic. So for example, if I was to be in a car accident and had a a major hemorrhage, well, I'm going to become anemic within a matter of hours, and that right. puts a huge amount of stress on the body. But for for most uh, women with iron deficiency or, or or men with iron deficiency anemia, this is something that's happened over uh, months, if not longer. And so the body it, it has an amazing ability to adjust up to a certain point. And and because we need the hemoglobin to carry oxygen, if you've got a heart condition or lung issues where getting oxygen is tough to begin with, then having uh, a low red blood cell count can, can become dangerous for sure. And it's something that needs to be, needs to be watched. I'm Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Adam Davidson, emergency physician at Lionsgate Hospital and a clinical assistant prof at the University of British Columbia Faculty of Medicine, and also uh, has a, a clinic called Mainline Wellness. It's uh, healthcare practitioners, safe, comfortable, convenient, rapid access to specialized outpatient services. Um, you, you're putting forward here, you and I had a, an, a conversation about this, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on here is because it, it just makes so much sense to me. Um, I'll call you Adam now. I've been calling you Dr. Davidson, but I have no, called you. <laughs> I think I will. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I was so formal there for a second, but it's like, Adam, you've <laughs> changed my, the way I'm thinking about this because so much conversation right now, certainly about wait times and, and also concerns over privatized medicine. And, and what you're proposing here with mainline wellness is, is sort of the, the marriage of the two that, that makes sure there's access for all. Can you give an idea of what your proposal includes here with regard to um, iron infusion at, at the very root? Sure, sure. And, and so certainly, again, in the ER, especially over these last couple of years, you can imagine so many of my interactions with patients have been very frustrating, especially for the patients, but for me as well, because they've got these issues and they're they're desperate and they're, they don't know where to go and you feel like you can't do anything about it. And, and this is, this was something that I thought, you know, I, I actually can do something about this. This is, this is in my wheelhouse. And so we started the clinic with the idea of offering uh, rapid access for, for patients to, to get IV iron therapy and, and accepting referrals from specialists and GPs and, and, the problem is, as you mentioned, at the moment anyways, this is a, it is a private service where it has to be covered by either insurance or, or out-of-pocket, and that's not ideal. I'm, not, um, I'm a big fan of public health care, and what I'm hoping to show with, with our clinic and, and what we've been able to achieve is that we, we can be an option to help offload the, the current backlogs in our hospitals because the, the, the medical daycare where these outpatient infusions are done, they're slammed, and, and iron is only a small part of what they have to, have to do. They do blood products, antibiotics, uh, biologic medicines, even chemotherapy in some hospitals. And, and so iron is, is not a, a huge priority, and yet, right. as we talked about before, it's such a, it's such a, a massive deal for, for a huge part of our population. And so I, our, what we're hoping down the road at some point is that we can say, hey, listen, we'll take care of your iron for you. Let us do this. This is, our, this is what we do and free up your space and your chairs to do the things that can only be done in hospitals. And therein lies the piece that I thought was just brilliant because you could just continue doing what you're doing and, and, and for those who have it covered or out of pocket and, and sort of be that boutique for those who can. Or you can go to the province of British Columbia or even on a larger scale and say, hey, if you're going to make this available and have it be covered, why can't we take some of that backlog for you so that the wait time to get this infusion for somebody who is feeling exhausted, maybe feeling anxious, maybe feeling blue, maybe not sleeping, maybe all of the restless leg syndrome, all of the things that you were talking about. And, and perhaps we can help those people in a way that it's covered by by medical, like by our socialized medicine, that, that it would be covered in that clinic with a four-month wait, but could be taken care of in mainline wellness sooner and perhaps keep those people from coming into the emergency saying, something's wrong with me, doctor. I'm exhausted. I'm, I'm out of breath. I can't do, you know, or I'm anxious. I'm doing all of, all of those symptoms coming to a head. 
it just seems it seems very commonsensical, Adam. It is, and I'm you know I'm I'm obviously I'm not a politician, and I and I don't know the complexities, of course, of a, of a, of the whole provincial health care, but it does to me seem like some low hanging fruit where uh, a common issue can be addressed a lot more efficiently and universally than it is currently. Um, we we just finished this project with. Um, where we solicited volunteers to to help sort of voice their experiences trying to navigate the system and trying to access iron to try and see what barriers they came up with because i i can I can see what i 've seen in emerge and I can read I know what the textbooks say but I, as a male i 've never experienced this and so we had uh, a, a wonderful group of volunteers come and describe their barriers over the years trying to get IV iron and i I frankly think uh, that yeah, that there's some 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 quick quick ways to to make this more available to people. And wouldn't that be helpful to the greater good? Particularly, and I'm going to speak on behalf of women right now. There are so many women who just keep moving forward no matter what they might be dealing with health-wise, and we are very proactive on so many levels when it comes to, you know, taking care of mammograms and pap smears and all of the things that that women, you know, have to keep up on. And yet when we're feeling completely exhausted, we're like, well, this just comes with it. This just comes with the territory. (laughs) There is a way to get some help for that. And like you said, back to what we were speaking of in the very beginning, it begins with a simple test, right? Checking that Mm -hmm. box on the requisition that then gives you a perspective on what you can or cannot fix. You know, maybe you do have disrupted sleep cycles because you're drinking too much coffee, or you might have (laughs) issues that could be taken care of with an infusion. So I think that's a big part of this conversation is that wellness piece that, that being proactive about those testing. And and you, like I said, you, you pushed me that little bit because I was interested in this as somebody who struggled in the iron department, uh, for a long, for my whole life. Um, and and getting the good news from you, where you're like, no, you're not a candidate. <laughs> I was like, great. Yeah, it was it was nice to tell you about your your boring blood work. I, I love that. I, yeah. And, and <laughs> I, love I think that. you, it, it it's there's this common misconception that if you're not anemic, then having low iron shouldn't shouldn't be affecting you, and and mm. that's completely uh, completely untrue. And oftentimes we don't go looking at at iron levels, which typically is done through a test called a ferritin until, until you see that somebody's anemic and, and often by that time they've been iron deficient for months, if not years. And yeah. somebody like yourself, you, you were proactive, your physician was proactive and you got on oral supplements early and you were able to correct it because you picked it up. You picked it up. And, and again, like I said, it's given, given how relatively cheap this test is, I, I really feel it should be something that should be screened for earlier, especially in women. And I got to tell you, taking those supplements, the Ferramax supplements that I take with a vitamin C on mm-hmm. uh, with my breakfast helps immensely. The energy level through the roof. Loved it. Thank you so much, Dr. Davidson. Where do people find out more about uh, mainline, mainline wellness? wellness. Mainlinewellness.ca is the, is the website and we'll hopefully get our, our research project up there shortly for people to have a look at. And I really appreciate you giving me the time to speak about it. Thank you so much. 